Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. All of the parts are in place for a giant commodity boom, in particular to fuel the transition to green energy and electric vehicles. But there's quite a bit of uncertainty that such a super cycle is coming, because there's so much uncertainty in the world. And many football fans cheered when Saudi Arabia's state investment fund bought a chunk of Newcastle United, a top league British team. But big money from a controversial country into a team, its city, and its region sparks some soul-searching questions. First up, though. Сегодня мне исполнилось 35. Столько же было отцу, когда он погиб. The three-minute ad opens on a man alone sitting on the corner of his bed, thoughtful, wistful. His voiceover in Russian recalls his late father speaking with pride about the Soviet Union. Отец был практичным человеком, верил в Россию. The video cuts to archive footage of Soviet cosmonauts as he talks of advancements made in science and the bygone respect of the world. That past sense of pride, he says, is what drove him to become a paratrooper and then an agent in Russia's security services. But he asks himself, does he now have the courage to address the great betrayal? He sees his country led by people more interested in yachts than in soldiers eating rotten potatoes. I was born to fight this fight, to fight against an internal enemy, he says. I haven't lost hope. I'm not powerless. The screen cuts to black. Cyrillic text reads... The people around you may not want to hear the truth. We do. This ad was put out by America's Central Intelligence Agency, a bold move to recruit Russian spies as double agents. It's unusual for an intelligence agency to taunt one of its rivals so openly. But it isn't just this ad. In January, we saw Bill Burns, the director of the CIA, write an essay in which he said the war in Ukraine was creating a huge opportunity for the recruitment of Russians. He said, we're not going to let this go to waste. Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defense editor. There is a danger, though, that this leads to a kind of triumphalism, a sense that the Russian intelligence agencies are defeated, on the floor, on the back foot. In fact, I think there's evidence they are dusting themselves off after quite a few past embarrassments and are really coming back with a vengeance. 
What are the past embarrassments you're referencing there? We could be here all day listing them, Jason. You might recall the attempted assassination of Sergei Skripal, a former Russian intelligence officer in the English city of Salisbury. Remember that hapless pair of Russian assassins who insisted they were there to see the famous spire of Salisbury Cathedral? We could look at the attempted assassination of Alexei Navalny, the late Russian opposition leader in 2020. His underpants were attacked with Novichok nerve agent. And of course, there's the war itself, right? The FSB, Russia's security service, gave Vladimir Putin a rosy view of how the invasion would go. They failed to prevent Western spies like the CIA from stealing and publicizing Russia's plans to invade Ukraine. And of course, last year, they couldn't stop this mutiny by Yevgeny Prigozhin, who was the leader of the so-called Wagner Group. So we've had a succession of embarrassments for these agencies, which have a long and very proud history. And yet you say it would be too hasty to to imagine that they are entirely weakened. You say coming back with a vengeance. All due respect, I know you know a lot of stuff, but how do you know that? Well, I've personally penetrated Russian intelligence, Jason. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. There is a great new report published by the Royal United Services Institute. It's a think tank in London. It draws on documents they say have been, quote, obtained from the Russian special services, which is the term the Russians use to describe their intelligence agencies. And I think it's informed by lots of interviews with Ukrainian officials as well as others. What it shows is something very interesting. It's showing that the Russians have realized they have problems. They have changed personnel, they've changed structures with the intention of better coordinating their covert operations, their disinformation campaigns, and also changing up their tradecraft so they don't screw up quite as much. So what does that reform look like, all these changes you mentioned? What the paper says is that in late 2022, so several months after the war began, Russia realized it needed its intelligence officers to give more honest reporting about what was happening. In an authoritarian state, that's difficult because you don't want to pass bad news up the chain. You tend to get punished for it. And what they did is put Sergei Kuryenko, the Kremlin's deputy chief of staff, a very important man in Vladimir Putin's orbit, in charge of so-called committees of special influence to coordinate operations against the West. And this is very important, also to measure the impact of those operations. To give you one example of this, Unit 29155, this was the unit of the GRU, Russian military intelligence, that attacked Sergei Skripal in 2018. Those guys no longer carry their personal or work phones to the site's facility using landlines instead. They do training in a variety of safe houses rather than on site. And whereas half of their personnel once came from the Spetsnaz, Russian special forces, a lot of their recruits no longer have a military background. So it is much harder for Western security services to identify them. And what have those kinds of changes meant for operations on the ground, though? Well, it'll clean up the kind of digital breadcrumbs that have allowed embarrassing exposés by research organizations like Bellingcat, which, of course, famously exposed the Skripal poisoners. Now, this isn't perfect. I've recently spoken to European intelligence officials who say the Russians are still conducting pretty crude operations using criminal organizations to conduct fake protests in the Baltic states, or we've seen an effort to daub Star of Davids on Jewish buildings in a way that's designed to foment tensions in France. 
These are still pretty crude efforts. They have obviously been revealed. But what the report says is that we are seeing some places, for example, Moldova, where Russian disinformation was once very scattershot, very ineffective, directed against the country's bid for European Union membership. And that is now growing a little bit more consistent, a little bit more focused, with the intention of finding dividing lines in Russian society, such as support for Ukraine, and trying to drive those wedges apart. I think another example would be the way the Russian agencies have taken over what is left of the Wagner Group ever since Mr. Prigozhin died in an explosion of his plane last summer. And what's happened basically is that the GRU has taken over the so-called expeditionary core of the Wagner forces in Africa and is now trying to use that to edge out Western influence in a number of key African countries. This report comes at a time, obviously, when there's a great deal of competition between Russia and the West. How does all of this figure in besides making Russia more formidable in the shadows? It's a really tense time. Ukraine is on the back foot. There are grave concerns in Europe over the potential for a Russian victory in Ukraine and that coming at the same time as a potential Trump presidency. There's growing concern in NATO about the pace of Russian rearmament and what that might do to the threat that Russia poses militarily. The intelligence contest is part of this. Russia wants to prepare for this east-west conflict, not just by traditional intelligence, not just by stealing secrets, but also through what they call active measures, by widening cracks inside NATO, undermining support for Ukraine, eroding Western influence in the global south. We shouldn't exaggerate this. Russia is still struggling. It's still a highly militarized society that has all but destroyed its civilian economy. And by and large, we are exposing lots of these operations. Russia has had hundreds of declared intelligence officers expelled from Western embassies. I'm told it's relying more on intelligence officers who have much more thin cover that can be seen through, especially in Eastern Europe. But all in all, we should recognize that we are in a phase of political warfare with Russia in which the Putin regime believes it is already at war with Europe. It is already in a fierce, intense competition. But a lot of Europe perhaps hasn't woken up to that fact yet. Shashank, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much for having me, Jason. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. For a few years there, between the early 2000s and the start of the global financial crisis in 2007, there was a long surge in the prices of raw materials. Demand from emerging markets, China in particular, just kept going up. It was a commodities super cycle. Fast forward to the predicted sharp economic recoveries of the post-pandemic era. Now mix in the simultaneous push towards more renewable energy. 
Lots of analysts and investors saw the ingredients of another super cycle. So where is it? Straight away after the pandemic, we saw this boom in a lot of different commodity prices. That was partly driven by a boom in demand for fuels, for metals, for soft commodities like agricultural goods. Mike Bird is The Economist's Asia business and finance editor and a co-host of our sister show, Money Talks. What we've seen since then is a slump in a lot of them. Lithium and nickel, which are crucial metals that go into batteries for electric vehicles, have slumped in price pretty aggressively since early in 2023. The Bloomberg Commodity Index, which tracks commodities in general, as it sounds like, is down by about 30% since its peak in the middle of 2022. So what's behind that? What is behind the uh, boom that went to bust? Well, it's always difficult to time commodity markets, and and that's always been true. They're vulnerable to relatively unpredictable economic cycles and the production capacity side of things, whether, you know, we're getting mines and every other way of, of getting commodities out into the world up and running. But you now have this big range of political and technological uncertainties as well. Things like the development of battery technologies for electric vehicles, things like the government appetite for various forms of subsidies or or bans on on dirty technologies. This means things like the forecast for oil prices can vary very, very widely depending on whether you think that governments are going to have a smooth and quick energy transition or whether they're not going to. At the mention of electric vehicles and indeed metals like lithium and nickel, where do they figure in here? So it's sort of strange to see lithium and nickel prices down so much when the electric vehicle market is still growing pretty rapidly. Uh, Globally, there are about 14 million electric vehicles sold last year. That's up by slightly more than a third from 2022. That sounds like pretty rapid growth. But I think it's the speed of the growth going forward that's in a little bit of doubt. Consumers are maybe not quite as enamored with electric vehicles as I think the automakers hoped they would be. They're staying on the lots of US car dealership longer than petrol cars. VW has missed its targets for EV sales. Ford and GM are delaying battery plant construction. So there's a little bit of uncertainty there. And what we've also seen is the prospect of the potential change in battery technology. So everyone knows we need these metals, lithium uh, and nickel and a variety of others to make batteries. But there are now sodium ion batteries rolling out of production in China. They don't need nickel or lithium. Sodium is basically everywhere. And if that becomes a standard form of battery technology, then it really does question whether the demand for the things that we thought we'd need for batteries will really stay there. So plenty of uncertainty, as you say, on the tech side, but you mentioned also the political side. Politicians now seem relatively concerned in comparison to a few years ago about the costs of all of this. Uh, The UK, for example, delayed its internal combustion engine ban, which was meant to come in in 2030. It pushed back by five years. The European People's Party in the European Parliament, the sort of main centre-right bloc, now opposes the EU's outright ban of the same nature. So it's hard to tell at the moment whether this is just debate around the edges, whether it's a bit of noise, or whether it's going to mean a really deeper shift in environmental policies. And commodity investors need to know that, because otherwise the prices won't be anywhere near to right 
There's some additional uncertainty relating to China's economy. In the early 2000s, the booming Chinese economy and a massive construction and infrastructure rollout helped to fuel that commodity super cycle. And you saw huge demand for things like copper. Now you've got slowing growth and a property investment slump, which is being offset to some extent by China's massive demand for the metals that they need for their own energy transition. So working out exactly which of those forces is going to be the more important one in the next, say, five years, very, very difficult. But in any case, the the kind of unfettered super cycle we saw in the early 2000s, that seems to be off the cards. I wouldn't say it's off the cards completely, but the case certainly looks a lot less compelling than it did a couple of years ago. It's very difficult to say how these Western political trade-offs will play out. And if you think understanding that is difficult, then trying to get a grip on what is happening in Beijing and exactly what the sort of incentives and priorities are there is even more difficult for most commodity investors. So without understanding all of those factors, demand for EVs, the technology inside them, and the politics both in Asia and the West of net zero. It's really, really difficult to get a grip on where commodity markets should be. Mike, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. I grew up in a small town just north of Newcastle, a city in the northeast of England. Duncan Weldon has been writing about Britain for The Economist. And if you're born in that part of the country, you don't really get a choice about which football club you support. It's Newcastle United, the local Premier League football team, or at least Premier League most of the time. He's been robbed. It's Almiron. It's Isaac. It's 2-0 Newcastle. I'm an economist by background, and if you crunch the numbers, Newcastle is actually one of the preeminent clubs in English football. But being a fan of Newcastle, at least over my lifetime, has not always been a smooth ride. It's an all-Northern Cup final as Blackpool and Newcastle United take the field at Wembley. Newcastle, playing in their famous magpie colours, have twice won the Cup at Wembley. Yes, Newcastle have won four league titles and six FA Cups. So amongst English clubs, they're actually in ninth place when it comes to total number of trophies they've won. But those glory days were a long way in the past. Their last major domestic trophy was in 1955, which was, to be clear, quite some time before I was born. And their best years were between 1904 and 1910, which was before my grandparents were born. In this century, following Newcastle has mostly been a disappointment. It is a stunning goal. Newcastle are absolutely seething. Are they complaining about everything, anything? And I'm not sure what the anger's all about. Michael, City of Wanda, what's Dan Burnson? So for many fans, there was this profound sense of excitement in October 2021 when Saudi Arabia's public investment fund, that country's sovereign wealth fund, also called the PIF, acquired an 80% stake in Newcastle United. Celebrating fans rushed to St. James's Park, the club's stadium, waving Saudi Arabian flags and wearing tea towels on their heads as a form of improvised kefirs. The excitement had good reason. They, like I myself wondered, might our beloved but struggling team finally be saved from this decades-long slump thanks to a big influx of Saudi cash? 
After all, it wouldn't be the first time a football club was transformed in this way. And although Newcastle is still struggling a bit this season, money has been pouring in to buy better players. And there have been some promising moments. Newcastle qualified for this year's Champions League, the elite pan-European club competition. And in a particular highlight, which I enjoyed, this past autumn, the team beat the French powerhouse Paris Saint-Germain 4-1. But, for all the excitement the new investment has brought, and the improved fortunes of the club, the takeover of Newcastle by Saudi money has been controversial. Because while those promising moments of triumph are wonderful, the source of the money which has made them possible is not. After all, Saudi Arabia is a place where homosexuality is illegal, and where a dissenting post on social media can get you sentenced to decades in prison or even death. Practicing free and open journalism in the country is a non-starter. For those reasons, when it was initially mooted in 2020, the notion of Saudi ownership drew accusations of sports washing from Amnesty International, the human rights champion. After all, there's a lot of washing that needs to be done to make one forget the repressive nature of Saudi Arabia's government. It's worth mentioning that it wasn't just fans of Newcastle United who were excited about the influx of cash that the purchase could mean. It turns out that having a globally successful football club is good for a city. An academic at Newcastle University told me the institution is already seeing more interest from foreign students. Economically, it helps too. The Centre for Economic and Business Research, a think tank, reckons that a league-winning team adds around one percentage point to the growth of local economic output that year, thanks to increased spending on things like hotels, food and drink. And for politicians and business owners, two years after the purchase, hopes are rising that the PIF's stake in the football team is just the first drop of a bigger flow of Saudi cash into the region. But the potential inflows of foreign cash present a quandary. Local politicians are of course keen to see much-needed investment in the city, but privately, they worry about where the money comes from. Similarly, while some fans flourish Saudi flags, many others worry that the on-pitch success comes with its own moral compromises. The question for fans like myself is, can you enjoy the fruits of the foreign investment, but conveniently ignore where it comes from? The rationalisations come easy. Sure, the source of the money might be suspect, but is it really so different from the fact that Roman Abramovich, a Russian oligarch, owned Chelsea FC for almost 20 years? Or that Paris Saint-Germain is owned by the Qatari government's investment fund? Each person has their own answer to that question. For me personally, it's wonderful to see the club doing well, but I try and keep in mind What's made that possible? Mortensen jumps up and heads past Fairbrother, and Newcastle breathe again. Sure, it's nice to see the occasional goal, and to once again to be able to dream of Newcastle lifting the FA Cup for the first time since the 1950s. But if they do manage, and you want to pop the champagne, don't think too hard about where all the money that made it possible came from. 
it might just leave you with a hangover. That's all for this episode of the Inte- Uh, hang on a second. What's that? Yeah. Yes, okay. I'll remind them. A reminder that you can still get 50% off a subscription to Economist Podcasts Plus and get access to all of our award-winning content. The link is in the show notes or a quick Google away. Search for Economist Podcasts. We'll see you back here tomorrow. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,